Morning. Welcome. Marvellous time of worship. Great to be able to come before God uh, in that way. I'm just uh, checking my uh, personal space here that I don't damage stuff around me. You know how I like to move. So uh, we are progressing with our uh, Reformation series in um, two weeks' time. On October the 31st, it's going to be uh, the the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, 1571. Uh, And uh, that's why we're going through a number of truths uh, concerning the Reformation uh, on this series. Uh, uh, You would have picked up that that at its heart is the story of a German monk, uh, Martin Luther, who uh, posted uh, 95 theses, 95 uh, challenges to the church at the time, the Catholic Church, on the, nailed them to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg and said, look guys, let's, let's talk about these. Um, but in truth, uh, the Reformation actually started much earlier. Uh, it almost began kind of 200 years earlier uh, with folks such as uh, John Wycliffe, who uh, was not content that the Bible remained in Latin and made the first translation of the, of the, Bati- of the Bible from Latin into English. Uh, It carried on with uh, men such as Thomas Cranmer and uh, Jan Hus, who would uh, die on the stake for their beliefs and for their challenges to the church. It moved on to men such as Luther himself uh, and his contemporaries, such as uh, Ulrich Zwingli. Uh, And then in the the later part of the 1500s, men such as John Calvin, who would find uh, the Reformation a kind of a loose set of Uh, uh, protests and ideas, uh, leave it a robust Christian theology with very clear doctrine that was written down for all to understand. Uh, And in the same way as the Reformation can't really be limited to a moment in time, uh, nor can it really be limited to a geographical place. I said at its heart is Germany uh, and the castle church at Wittenberg, but the effects of the Reformation were, were felt throughout Europe from countries such as Czechoslovakia and Romania in the east to the New World colonies in America uh, in the west, places as far north as Scotland, in sleepy hamlets and in bustling cathedral cities. The truths of the Reformation were discussed, uh, debated uh, and indeed fought over. Uh, and when all of, all of the dust had settled, when all this, this, uh, this truth was distilled... Uh, what emerged was five key truths, five solas to give them their Latin name. Those are the things that we're looking at uh, in this series. Last week, Steve started by looking at sola scriptura, by scripture alone is truth revealed to us. In the coming weeks, we're going to look at uh, sola gratia, our salvation comes through God's grace alone. Soli dello gloria, all things give glory to God alone. Uh, Solus Christus, Christ alone, is our mediator. Uh, Steve made a start last week, I think, of telling us how you can have five things that are all alone. I'll leave that great theological point to him to expand further. But this morning, we're looking at sola fide, uh, by faith alone. Uh, Luther, uh, Luther himself said, well, actually, John Calvin said, uh, this is the main hinge on which religion turns. Uh, Luther said, nothing in this doctrine can be given up or compromised, even if heaven and earth and things temporal 
should be destroyed. And the truth is that because the Reformation took place over such a period of time, across such a disparate uh, geographical uh, location, um, many of the Reformers disagreed amongst themselves as much as they disagreed with the Catholic Church. But on one thing, they were united. And that was this principle of by faith alone. On this, they spoke with one voice. And so all of these are important. All of these are absolutely vital. Uh, But if I would dare to make such a, a bold statement that we should grab hold of one and say, this one alone most defines the truth of the Reformation, then I would make that bold and daring statement that it would be sola fide. By faith alone is at the heart of the Reformation. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So uh, we can do that with excitement, with expectation that God is going to speak to us, uh, reveal his truth to us. Uh, Before we kick into that, let's just pray. Father, thank you for your truths. Thank you for... Uh, the way that you have opened men and women's hearts to the truth of who you are, just poured your spirit into them, that you've moved your church on, moved your people on in a greater and greater revelation of who you are. Just pray you continue to do that with us this morning. Amen. Amen. So let us start by asking, what exactly do we mean when we say, by faith alone? Because that's not actually even a sentence, is it? By faith alone, something. By faith alone, dot, dot, dot. What does that phrase actually mean? Uh, And the truth is, uh, it's actually more of an answer to a question than it is a statement. It's an answer to a question, perhaps the most important, the most vital, the most significant question that men and women can ever ask. And that question is, How do I get right with God? How do I get right with God? How is it that at the end of time, I can stand before God and that he can welcome me in a holy, perfect, wonderful God? How is it that I, with all my sin, can stand before God and he can welcome me into his presence rather than consigning me to an internal separation from him? How is it that I can get right with God? And the answer to that is that it is by faith alone. That was the declaration of the Reformers, that by faith alone are we made right with God. By faith alone are we justified, to give it its uh, its theological term. And this is crazy, this is outrageous, this is so counter to any natural way of thinking. Because if you look at any other religion, if you look at any other faith, if you look at any other pattern of beliefs and ask this question, how do you get right with the God that you believe in? The answer is, you have to do something. Other religions will say, you have to pray enough. You have to read your Bible enough. Uh, The cults will say, you have to give enough money. You have to convince enough other people of your truths. All of this is what you have to do. Or if we make it personal, what I have to do. What I have to do to get right with God. I must do this. I must do this. I must do that. Only the Christian faith says it's not about what I do, 
but about what he has done, about what God has done in giving me his righteousness. I cannot do this in my own strength. I cannot make myself right with a holy and perfect God. See, even Luther realised this. This was the struggle that Luther went through as the most uh, uh, diligent and dedicated monk who prayed and confessed and went on pilgrimages and did everything he possibly could to get close to God, to make himself right. What was his conclusion? Simply this, my situation, says Luther, my situation was that although an impeccable monk, not just a run-of-the-mill one, not just a kind of doing this, an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner and I had no confidence that my merit would satisfy him. See, we can make a concerted effort, we can make a dedicated effort to be right, to be good, but we know that we can't do it in our own strength. We're not perfect. Of course, we should acknowledge that there is a way to get right with God in our own strength. There is a way to justify ourselves, and that's to be perfect, which is kind of a tough call, isn't it? Is good enough in God's eyes yeah, maybe if we could be 90% good. Maybe if we could be 95% good. Maybe if we could be 99% good. If we could ever measure such things. If we could ever define such things. Would 99% be good enough? No, it wouldn't. Because God is holy and perfect and righteous. The world long jump record is 8.95 metres, set by an American, Mike Powell, in 1991. It's about 25 years ago. That's about as far as it is from that fire exit where Tracy and Neil are sitting to here, this raised bit of the the platform. So I want you to imagine with me for a moment that that we all kind of got... I'm not going to ask you to do it, but imagine for a moment that when he all got up and we all stood on this side of the stage, right here where this raised bit is. We've got to be behind this line here. And I want you to imagine that rather having a stage here, there is a bottomless pit. It's a bottomless pit because it's about nine metres from there to there. And there's a bottomless pit, and we all stand here. In fact, all of humanity stand here, and God's on the other side. And if we want to get to, our, to God in our own strength, And we've got to jump that gap. A few people said, wow, when I pointed out what nine metres was, wasn't it? You see, my long jumping days are over. Actually, I don't think I ever had long jumping days. I'm probably not going to make it. I think I might make halfway. Some of the, it's a shame that Solid got out because I'm pretty sure that some of those could do a whole lot better. You know, they, they, you know, might make it to the flags or something. And I don't know how to say this politely, but frankly... Some of you, you're not going to do a very good job at all. I kind of got news for you that the speaker is going to be a bit of a challenge. We're all going to make it various distances, but I don't think many of us or any of us are going to make it to the fire escape. And see, isn't it ironic that as we all fall down that bottomless pit together, 
we compare ourselves. And we turn to one another and say, hey, I made it further than that person. Or, look at him, he didn't get very far at all. We could even admire people and say, wow, look how far she jumped. But the point is, we're all falling down this bottomless pit together. Our very best is not good enough. If we could somehow time warp Mike Powell here from 1991, he would do his jolly best and his fingertips might just graze the fire escape bar. But it wouldn't be enough. We all fall short of the glory of God. That's the standard that God sets. Matthew 5, 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. As Paul says in Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what Luther realised, not that he had to clear nine metres, but Luther realised that he couldn't do this in his own strength. That was what tormented him, that's what challenged him. And then came this revelation that he didn't have to do it in his own strength. Luther was studying Romans and came across Romans 3.21 where it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. You see, the righteousness of God is manifest by the law. It's the law that tells us what we need to do. It's the law that points out the gap is nine metres. It's the law that points out you can't reach across nine metres. And Luther quite rightly says, all the law does is condemn me. When the law talks about the righteousness of God, all it does is show me how far short I fall. But the verse in Romans says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. There's a way to obtain this righteousness apart from the law. And Paul in Ephesians says, for by grace you have been saved. That's what we want, isn't it? We want to be saved. We want to clear that gap. We need salvation. We need righteousness. We need to be justified. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith. Sola fide. By faith alone. We are saved. And so this was the great truth that Luther uh, and those that came after him realised. This was the challenge that they had to give back to the church that, that was so fixed on it's what you do that makes you right before God. It's about your works that save you. And the reformers said, no, it is the righteousness of God. And as they worked on this, as they developed this, they came across four key things, I guess, that I want to draw out this morning. Three things about this righteousness that is not ours, but is God's. First thing about this righteousness is that it is imputed and not inherited. Two words there that I'll explain. The righteousness that we have from God is imputed not inherited. As I've been saying, this righteousness is not my own. It's something that's given to me. You see, the prevailing theology before the Reformation, or actually, there was never any doubt before the Reformation of the fact that we were sinners and we needed to get right with God. Nobody would argue with that. That was absolutely clear. 
We fall short of the glory of God. The question was, how do we get right with God? And for the church before the time of the Reformation, the answer was, you do it in your own strength. You have to become good enough. You have to do enough good works. You have to earn your righteousness. You have to be an okay sort of person. And at the end of time, when you stand before God, God will look at your righteousness and say, that's sufficient. Now, we know that's not right, and so this was the challenge that the reformers brought. It's not a case of, if I try hard enough, I can make something inherently in me that makes me good enough. The reformer said, no, this righteousness is imputed. It's given to us. When Christ was on the cross, when Christ died on the cross for us, this great transaction took place. This this scandalous transaction took place where my sin, all, all the stuff that was a barrier between me and God, all my sin was taken from me and laid on Christ. That's why Christ on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, God hadn't, but our sin stood as that barrier between us, between God and Christ, because that sin was resting on him. So he took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. It's not ours. It's given to us. It's imputed to us. We are clothed with it. It's like like putting on the richest, the the, the most uh, expensive uh, coat or cloak that you could wear. You're now covered in that righteousness. We have that righteousness not because of anything that we do, but because of what he has done for us. Second thing about this righteousness is that it is immediate. It's not gradual. It comes to us in a moment. We are declared righteous. We are declared justified before God. You see, again, the the theology before this time was it will take you a lifetime of doing the right stuff that you might, at the end, be able to stand before God righteous. And Luther and and the Reformer said, no, we are made righteous in an instant, in a moment. See, frankly, if I live to be 100, I doubt I'm going to get much better. I mean, just think about it. I've just frankly got more opportunity to do more stuff that I frankly regret. My life is not going to suddenly, or even eventually, attain that point of perfection where God says, wow, aren't you a neat guy? I'm going to fall short of that standard now. I'm going to fall short of that standard in a hundred years' time and trying in my own strength to gradually get better is not going to make it. This change happens in an instant. There's a lot of similarity between this idea of justification and a courtroom. Imagine uh, for a moment the picture of a courtroom uh, and a person on trial and the judge and the jury. Uh, If you've ever been in a court, or or more likely you've kind of seen it on TV drama, you kind of know what happens. Uh, You kind of get to the end of the trial uh, and the judge says, and and the accused will now rise. And the accused stands up and the the members of the jury, they they hand uh, the judge uh, a folded bit of paper with the verdict on and and the judge has a look at it, and he says, the the accused will now rise. And the judge says, the evidence has been weighed, and you have been found. And then the verdict is given, isn't it? 
Either it's you are declared innocent or you are declared guilty. And in that moment, that judgment is passed. Now what doesn't happen, and this would be crazy and weird, but go with me for a moment. What doesn't happen is the judge doesn't say the the accused will now rise. And he says, well, do you know what? I've looked at the evidence and it's kind of interesting. There's a lot of stuff for you. And there's a lot of compelling evidence against you. And it's a bit of a tough call, this one. But what I've decided, and what the jury have decided, that overall, we're going to decide that you're innocent. Cheer goes around the courtroom. But he said, but but it was just such a tough call that what I want you to do is I want you to stand there for two hours and be good. And my innocent judgment is slowly going to push out that kind of guilty evidence. Just stand there and be good for two hours. Now, that's weird, isn't it? That's crazy. That doesn't happen. Because in a moment, the judge says, you are innocent or you are guilty. And you see, that's what happens to us when we accept Jesus Christ into our lives. That decision is made in a moment, in an instant. I am declared righteous. Hallelujah. You can say hallelujah. And this was the point that the, 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 the reformers had to wrestle with. In many ways, it was, it was kind of understandable if we, if we give the church kind of a little bit of, of um, uh, the benefit of the doubt at the time. Because if we were to go back 500 years to Europe and think about how life was then, frankly, as far as kind of Europe was concerned... Everybody was really a Christian because if you decided you didn't believe in God, you kind of got burnt at the stake for it. So there was this kind of Christianity, no matter how kind of fervent you were or not, everybody would kind of confess that, yeah, well, I do go to church. You know, most people went to church. The church was at the centre of social life. Frankly, that's why there's so many churches in this country. You go to any village in this country and there is a church. Because the church was the focal point. It was the central point, not just of people's religious experience, but their actual social experience. The church was at the centre. So everybody went to church. Everybody was baptised. Everybody would have said, yes, of course, I'm a Christian. So for the church, there was no real external imperative to evangelise the non-Christians. Because there weren't any. Yeah, if you wanted to find your non-Christians, you probably had to go halfway across the world to you know, evangelise over there, go on a crusade or something. But as far as Europe was concerned, folks would confess to being Christians. You see, I'm going. So, so this whole imperative about uh, reach out to, to, to the neighbourhood, to our friends, to your family that don't know Jesus, people 500 years ago would have shook their head at that. And so the imperative was not an external one to reach the lost, It was an internal one. All I can do is be a better me. And that would have made perfect sense 500 years ago. That's the imperative. That's the direction of travel for the church. We all need to be better us. We all need to do better works, more works, so that ultimately God will accept us. And again, the reformers had to say, no, this is an immediate act. You are saved in an instant you are saved in a moment. Thirdly, moving on, righteousness is assured, not uncertain. 
This is so important because if this righteousness that we have been talking about comes from God and not from us, then we can trust in it. Yeah, I can tell you some stuff and I hope you might believe that what I'm telling you is true, but then again, you have the perfect right to not believe that what I'm telling you is true and quite honestly, I could be mistaken. I could even be telling you an untruth. You can't 100% trust what I say or anybody else says because we're human, because we're fallible. But if this salvation, if this righteousness comes from God, then we can be absolutely certain that it is true. Why was the Bible written? I'm not changing subject. That's always an interesting question to throw out. Why was the Bible written? What's one of the key purposes of the Bible? You could answer in many ways. They'd probably all be right. But in 1 John 5.13, John says this. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. I trust that's us this morning. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. You see, these things are written not that we... We, we might have a rough hope, a kind of a 50-50 guess. It's more than we might even have an expectation. These things are written that we might know that you have eternal life. And this again is the point of difference that is so important. Because if you are ever confronted on your doorstep, on the street corner, by somebody who wants to knock on your door and talk to you about what it means to be a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or something or anything else, and you think, well, how do we deal with that? And most people say, oh, shut the door and say, no, thank you very much, not today. But ask them the question, do you know for certain if you were to die tonight you would go to heaven with God. Do you know for certain that if you were to die tonight, you would go to heaven? And listen to the answer that they give back. Because the answer that comes back will always be a, I hope so. I think so. Maybe. I'm doing the best I can to up my chances. And we as Christians need to point people to 1 John 5.13. These things are written that you might know that you have eternal life. And you see, this morning, if there's anybody here this morning, and you are a Christian, and you've, bought, you've asked Jesus into your life, and you are still thinking, well, am I doing enough? All these other folks seem to be so much better than me seem to have it so much together. We don't, by the way, or none of us do. But, but we can do that. We can look at somebody else and say, oh, yeah, they're better than me. That's just that bottomless pit again, isn't it? We're all just so far across, but it doesn't really matter. But God says, no, this is certain. You see, we can't jump nine metres. The only thing that can span nine metres is the outstretched arm of Jesus on the cross. That's what bridges that gap. And it doesn't matter if you have been a Christian for one week or for 70 years. It doesn't matter if you have read your Bible 20 times from cover to cover or you have read one verse. You are justified by faith alone. 
I love the story of the thief on the cross. The story of the thief on the cross. Have you ever thought about him? Jesus said to him and said, today you'll be with me in paradise. How dare Jesus say that to the thief on the cross? Today you'll be with me in paradise. The guy had never been to a church meeting. He never got baptised. He'd never taken communion. He'd never told his friends about Jesus. He, I don't think he had a chance to open up scriptures. His one prayer consisted of maybe three or four words. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What had he done? What had he done to make himself acceptable to God? He was trusting in Jesus. And so Jesus turns to him and says, Today you will be with me in paradise. You see, no matter what we do, it's not a question of what we do. It's a question of who we're trusting in. I write these things that you might know that you have eternal life. And then the last thing that I wanted to look at in regards to this righteousness. Righteousness is a spur to good works, not a consequence of good works. Because we have to answer this question, if we are saved by faith, then what is the place of works? What is the purpose of works? Are they totally irrelevant and out of here? Can I, as a Christian, go off and live whatever lifestyle I like, do whatever I like and say, it doesn't matter because I'm saved by faith? Well, no, we're not saying that. And it is a challenge Certainly it was a challenge for Luther who was trying to define this doctrine and and push this truth out for the first time. Uh, Because Luther had his struggles, the reformers had their struggles because on the one hand we have Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you are saved through faith, hallelujah. But you've kind of also got James. And James 2.14 says What good is it brothers if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Well, kind of Luther saying, yes, it can. James seems to be saying, it's a rhetorical question, but James is kind of saying, well, actually, no works are important. James 17, it's not that James just had one kind of aberrant verse. James 17, so also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And uh, 1 Peter uh, 1 Peter 1, 17, and if you call on him as father, and again, I think we all here call on God as father, if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Ooh. And you can see why Luther struggled with it. In fact, Luther struggled with this so much that when he, uh, he, trans- when he first translated the Bible into German, he was tempted to drop books such as James and Hebrews, and I think Revelation and Jude as well, because he just found some of the stuff in there contradictory. Um, And in the end, he didn't kind of drop the books completely from his translation, but he stuck them at the back, almost as an appendix. Uh, And kind of in small group on Wednesday, Di was uh, showing me a a German Lutheran Bible. She she, she brought it along. Um, And the first thing I did was kind of flick to the back, because I wanted to see, has it got Hebrews in it? Has it got James in it? Uh, uh, are they even in there? Uh, and because this was a modern uh, translation, a modern one, so yes, they were there and in the right order. But, but Luther struggled with these books, with these passages that seemed to say, well, actually, no, works has got something in there as well. 
And so we can't just dismiss works. We can't just dismiss the fact that we are called upon to do good deeds, to reach the lost, to feed the hungry, to clothe the homeless, to reach out in, with practical needs to people around us. But the truth has to be declared that it isn't those acts that save us. We are saved through faith. But because of that faith, because of our trust in God, we are spurred on to do good works. And in that sense, James can say, faith without works is dead. You see, I have known some people, I'm sure you have as well, I've known some people that have professed to be Christians. And when you look at their lives, you think, but there's absolutely no evidence of that in the things that you do, in the lifestyle that you lead, in the things that you say, I just see no evidence. Now, now it's not our place to judge. Please hear me on that. It's God's place to judge. But when we see that, we, we do say, we do ask quite rightly, well, did you ever truly make that initial commitment? Did you ever really make that point of, get, that, get to that point of trusting in God alone? that in itself would spur you to good works, to change your lifestyle, to hear from him, to let the Holy Spirit work in you. And again, don't hear what I'm not saying. That's not that we suddenly all become perfect and all suddenly lose the problems that we have. But we have this ongoing walk. We have these works. We have these uh, good deeds that are set aside for us to do. Not that they save us but that they affirm our faith to others as much as to ourselves. And so we don't suddenly, as I said, ditch works and say, oh no, it doesn't matter what I do, it absolutely does. But by faith you are saved, we are saved. The church teaching that Luther would challenge said, if I get better, then I will get saved. Luther said no. What happens is, if I get saved, then I will get better. And that's the order that we have to put things in. Because as well as justification, which is what we've been talking about this morning, justification being made right with God through faith alone, we have sanctification, which is that ongoing walk with God that will take the rest of our lives. And we will never reach the end of that journey because that is a journey. That is the journey to take on more and more of the character of Christ. To more and more excel in good works. To more and more do the things that we know need to be done. To more and more have the character of Christ in our lives. That's a lifetime journey. And sanctification is vital to our Christian walk. But what saves us is the fact that we are justified by faith alone. To a church, uh, and indeed a world, that said, I get right with God through what I do, the truths of the Reformation came as a remarkable about-face, as a, as a remarkable change of heart that brought relief and comfort. And we have to ensure that 500 years on we don't fall into those same traps. That we don't fall back into a viewpoint that says this faith, this belief, this following Jesus is about doing stuff. Yes, it is about doing stuff, but we're not saved by doing stuff. 
we're saved by trusting in him, by trusting alone in the outstretched arms of Christ on the cross to be sufficient to bring us before God, holy and righteous. By faith alone are we saved. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the uh, worship team back. I'm sure we've got time for just one closing chorus, but this is so important that as we do that, as we close, uh, sing one more song, go down for coffee. If this morning you know that you've been struggling with this, if you know that you've been trying to work this out in your own strength, believing that God has rejected you or, or wouldn't want something to do with you because you're not doing enough stuff, then God wants to set you free from that this morning. God wants you to know that if you are trusting in him, then you are as loved and accepted and as part of the kingdom as you can ever be. You have been declared innocent. This morning you need prayer for healing. Then again, we, we always want to make that opportunity. Come forward, there'll be folks that can pray with you or just pray with somebody nearby that you know uh, loves Jesus and would be willing to pray with you uh, for healing. If this morning you have not accepted Jesus into your life, if you suddenly realise that, yeah, this is new news, I'm on the wrong side of a pretty big gulf and I need to do something about that. If you've never taken that step of commitment, of asking Jesus into your life, then do again. Come and see someone down the front here or seek someone out. Pray with somebody who can tell you more about this. Perhaps explain it a little bit simpler than I can as to what it means to be trusting in Jesus for the very first time. But can I ask the band to come back and I'll just close in prayer and then we can sing one last chorus. Thank you, Father, for your goodness, your grace, your love for us, the way that you have done everything, that you have reached out, that you have made this relationship with you possible. Father, I pray you'd release us from any sense of we have to earn our salvation, any sense that we have to do enough to make ourselves acceptable to you. Will we be people that are freed from that burden. We've talked of burdens this morning. Lord, would you free us from the burden of believing we have to do enough stuff? Enable us to see that we just come to you, our Father, our Saviour, by faith alone. Amen.